Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. I must say, it's, oh, my name is Eve. <laughs> Start the routine correctly. And I am a very grateful, sober, recovered alcoholic. And uh, I say recovered because that's what the big book says. If you all want to say recovering, it's all right with me. But um, we used to say recovered when I got sober. So I guess the people who came into AA a long time ago got sober. And the rest of you are just still recovering. (laughs) Anyhow, I'm most happy to be here. And... Interestingly enough, it's, I feel differently than I normally do when I get up at a big meeting like this because it's the first time I've ever been speaking at a conference which was in my home area. You know, I didn't have to travel by train, air, and God knows what to get there. I drove up with my friend Sandy, whom I was so delighted was picked to come and help me get here because she's a great helper. She's, she's great. She even found a back road to come on when we were stuck not able to uh, drive forward because it was a mobile home just stranded in the middle of the highway. <laughs> and everybody was parked behind it waiting to move and so forth. And this one, zip, 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 zip. We're back on the highway. <laughs> Don't tell me alcoholics aren't clever. <laughs> we may be kind of dumb, but we're, we're, we're clever. I am real happy to be here. And this is a lovely spot, and my room looks right out over the mountains and the trees and everything. It's absolutely beautiful. I think the Ozarks in the springtime are something absolutely beautiful. I've never seen them before, so I'm relishing it. And I keep seeing trees I want to take pictures of and send home, and, and uh, I don't have a camera with me, so that's part of the course also. I wish people who weren't alcoholics had an opportunity to sit on a wall somewhere or on the ceiling like a fly, and just sort of get an ear in on some of these conventions and conferences that we share in. They'd sure get a different look at what an alcoholic can be, wouldn't they? And then those who think that we're fighting to take a drink, you know, I hate some of the movies about alcoholics because they have that, that idea that they're fighting for this. I'm not going to take a fighting for this drink. If they could see how damn sober and happy we are in our sobriety, They'd wish they were alcoholics, too. (laughs) I mean, I honestly think we ought to be eternally grateful for the program that we have come to have in AA, that we have come to live our lives by, hopefully, in AA. You know, we used to have different... I know when I first came to AA, I thought everybody was going to be kind of low class. And... uh, I was surprised to find there were people even more intellectual, beautiful, and wealthy than I was, you know. <laughs> and that, that is such a myth, because alcoholics are wonderful people uh, if they're sober. And we have the opportunity in AA uh, to learn that and to find that kind of sobriety that makes us feel whole, that makes us feel that we're a part of, of, of uh, our society. That we can, that's the reason I don't like recovering, because it sounds like you're never really going to get to be anybody. 
You know, you're never really going to be a good citizen or, or grow up to be a mature person or really stable or responsible or none of those good things that citizens have. We're not supposed to have those because we're still recovering. And uh, that's, well, I won't get into that. I, I do, I do, I do talk about it because I, I feel strongly about it. One of the greatest things for me when I first got sober was the identification that I made with sober alcoholics who had recovered. And I think we miss some of that when we don't uh, spend a little bit more time on the joy of sobriety. Because that's really what we're here for. That's really what we got when we came for. That's not what we came for, but it's what we got when we got here. Uh, I know when I got here, all I prayed for was some way to stop drinking. Some way to, to just, just that, just to stop drinking. And stop doing the things that I did that so revolted me. Stop making me feel so despairing about ever being able to become a decent person again. And uh, all of that. And uh, that's all I expected to get from AA. That's all I wanted to get. Because I uh, realized that I had been an alcoholic for a very long time. Uh, when I first got to AA, people would say to me, how long do you think you've been an alcoholic? And I, I would say... Oh, I guess maybe oh, it's about a year, you know. And then a little later on, somebody say, "Well, how long do you think you've been an alcoholic?" I say, "Well, maybe three or four years, you know." And that would go on stupidly until I finally recognized the fact wholeheartedly that I had been an alcoholic from the time I took my very first drink. I don't know if I was born an alcoholic, because I don't think there's any way you can prove that without taking a drink. And if you take the drink, then you prove it. So that's that's a lost cause. But I eventually came to learn that I certainly was an alcoholic from the time I first had the drink that meant so much to me. And I think that's one of the clues, is, uh, you know, uh, those people are walking out, and I'm thinking, am I speaking loud enough? Are you all hearing me back there? Yes or no? Okay, I don't want you to miss one golden pearl. <laughs> I, I had no particular reason to be an alcoholic, except when I look back at it, I can recognize the fact that I had characteristics about myself uh, that were so indicative of what alcoholism is that I can realize that I, you know, I was right there from the very start. In the first place, I was so homely, and uh, it's it's hard for people to recognize how how awful that is for somebody who is, and uh, because you're constantly uh, constantly aware of the fact that you're not looking like everybody else, that your nose is too big, and that your arms are too long, and your elbows are too big, and and you know all those terrible things about one. Uh, it, it's very disturbing, and you don't feel very good about yourself. And that's one of the problems. When you don't have a good feeling about yourself, you are a sitting duck for alcoholism, as far as I can see. And uh, certainly, uh, I I was that uh, sitting duck. And uh, I remember at one point in time, I, my father decided he was going to hire two sisters. And uh, they were both very beautiful. And I always thought it was a little unfair to have only one of us be hum homely and that be me. Why couldn't one of them been homely and have only... One pretty one and two homies. I wouldn't have felt so bad if it had been two, uh, two of us. But no, I, I was it. And one time my dad decided he'd like to have some portraits painted of us. We were in our late teens, early twenties, something like that. And so he uh, called in a very famous artist in New York 
and had him commissioned to do portraits of each of his darling daughters. And that seemed fine, and we all posed. And then uh, the day came when we were going to have the great unveiling, and we all trooped down to my father's uh, apartment in, in New York, and the paintings were lined up to, to show us, you know. And we all looked, and everybody looked, and I looked, and I burst out crying. The other girls were all, and I'm crying. My father says, what's the matter? And I looked at that picture, and I said, I'm so homely. And it was the homiest damn picture you've ever seen. (laughs) I mean, I think he even highlighted my nose. (laughs) So anyhow, Dad said, finally, he said, well, this won't do. You'll have to do this one over. So he sent it back, and uh, Mr. Chase, the artist, went ahead and painted another one, portrait of me. And you should see it. It's just gorgeous. <laughs> Has a little fur draped over my shoulders. This is in the 20s, you know, back in the 20s. And uh, just darling, you know. And I loved it. And it hangs on my wall now. And always will, because it reminds me of what I was always trying to be when I didn't know myself. That I was always trying to be the, the glamour, the this, the that, that I was not cut out to be and did not know who I was. And it wasn't until I got to AA that I really and truly finally began uh, to learn who I was. And I think that's one of the great gifts that we have in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. That fourth step, if we keep on doing it, we'll really find out that we're not so bad after all. One of the problems I had was that I had such low self-esteem. I came from a a family. Everybody was talented. Everybody was marvelously able to do anything. And I I could never do anything. And so I just felt so inadequate. I thought I could never never be anybody. You know, that terrible urge we have to be somebody. That's one thing AA can teach you. You are somebody, even if you're nobody. And we all should know that. And I, but I had, uh, my father was a playwright, my uncle, uh, one uncle was a, a famous actor, actor manager, toured all over the country, another, another uncle was a painter who has stuff hanging in the Corcoran and Metropolitan Art Galleries, and uh, I had an aunt who was a dancer and a poet, and uh, my mother was a, a beautiful sculptress. Uh, unfortunately, she died very young. I was only 12 when she died, and so we only had a very few pieces of her work. But she was uh, very talented. And here was this poor, begotten girl who thought nothing of herself and was homely, looked up at all these people and didn't feel that she could go anywhere or do anything. And so that was my, most of my youth was spent like that. And, uh, after my mother died, uh, we had various housekeepers come and take care of us. And my father uh, eventually sent all of us away to school. When my youngest daughter got, my youngest daughter, my, my youngest sister got old enough to be sent away to school, I went off to college and the other two girls went to boarding school. And at college I didn't belong either. I, I just was so uh, inadequate, all I could say. And I begged my dad not to leave me there. I begged him, I said, Dad, please, don't be, take me home, take me back. And he wouldn't, and I, I, I said, oh, God, now I've got to go back up to my room and meet that friend. I had a roommate that I had just met to see her, and she's so snotty, and I don't know what's comparable in, uh, 
in Eureka Springs to Greenwich Village, or not Greenwich Village, but Greenwich, Connecticut, in New York. You know, horsey and snobby and da 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 And she was like that, and I was terrified of her, and I thought, I've got to go back up to that room and see her, oh dear, you know. But I got back up to the room and discovered she'd requested a transfer. Well, I just went right down, you know. I was just totally rejected. I thought, oh my God, I knew I wasn't going to be able to get along with anybody. And I'm, and I'm crying, and I'm sorry for myself, and I'm totally rejected. And uh, in a moment, my new roommate comes in. And I took one look at her. She had kind of greasy black hair. She wore glasses. She had a stack of books. And I, who had just then been in a real low, full of rejection and fear, I took one look at her and to myself said, but I deserve better than this. (laughs) And I have often wondered how I, we, I, could do that all the time. Go from one sense of total rejection and, and so forth, and in five minutes, be absolutely, uh, you know, brilliant about how good we were and how lousy you were. And that happened with me over and over again until I finally got into the fourth step. And that helped me to get rid of that. But it took some time. Anyhow, <clears throat> I stayed in college. Uh, for three years. This was during the Prohibition years. I, I was in a class of 28 in Vassar, and um, everybody was drinking on the campus, but I didn't dare. I didn't want to. I was. It was as if I was afraid of something going to happen to me if I drank. Uh, I had seen people drunk, doing stupid things, and above all things, I didn't want to appear stupid, for heaven's sake, not this brilliant woman. And so I just kind of uh, didn't drink. And I knew I was going to go to Europe at the end of my sophomore year because my dad was sending me along with uh, other fathers, sending their daughters. Everybody back in those days had the grand tour of Europe if they were anything at all, my dear. And so I was supposed to uh, go on this trip to Europe. And so I decided that I would wait until I was in Europe because over there they drank, you know, beautifully. I would wait to drink the way the Europeans did, not out of hip flasks and all the rest of it. I would drink, you know, graciously, just a little wine with my meals, and, you know, it would be just lovely. And uh, I, I saw off I went. Uh, about ten girls and about fifteen chaperones. Very different from the way girls travel today, I might add. <laughs> In fact, everything is different than it was then. I'm sounding old now. I'm not old. I'm older, but I'm not old. I read a wonderful description once of what elderly was all about. It said in a dictionary of some kind, it said elderly is a loss of enthusiasm for life. And I think that's a pretty good definition. And as long as we're in AA, I don't think we have any chance of losing our enthusiasm for life. But I digressed. And I wonder where I was. <laughs> Thank you, Bunny. <laughs> Bunny gave me a cue. A clue. <laughs> Anyhow, I didn't wait till we were in Europe because they began to serve 12 miles out. Uh, they, you couldn't have any booze, you know, further in than 12 miles out. That was the law. But once 12 miles out arrived, all the stewards are out there with orders and so on and so forth. And so he asked someone next to him what they would have and, and 
he said, uh, a, uh, an orange blossom, or she, whoever it was. And so I thought, well, I don't know anything about drinks, but that sounds pretty innocuous. So I said, well, I'll have an orange blossom. And so I had my orange blossom, graciously. Ooh. <laughs> you never know what happened. All of a sudden, I was five foot two, eyes of blue. And I, I thought I had found a miracle. Because it did for me what I was unable to do for myself. And right then and there, I began to believe that alcohol was my, was the, was the thing for me, that it was the, uh, elixir, uh, that it would solve my problems. And so I used alcohol from then on, from then on, not, uh, it was, to, it was to, to cope. I needed to cope with the problems that I faced every day, mostly within myself, only I didn't recognize that then. It was everybody else that was bothering me. And so I could use alcohol to help my cope with it. Unfortunately, I got caught drinking on the campus, and so I got expelled. <clears throat> and I felt very heartbroken about that. My mother had been to Vassar in the class of 1903, and my sister was coming up the following year. And here I've disgraced the whole family. I've been expelled, and so on and so forth. And my dad came up, and and I I couldn't tell him how badly I felt. Why is it that we we can't tell people how badly we feel? Not when we're still drinking, anyway. And uh, so I said, you know, Dad, this is a, I'm sorry it happened, but this place is a terrible school, very bad school. I wouldn't, I wouldn't come back here next year even if I had not been fired, and so on and so forth. He went over to see the, the uh, dean, and he came back. The dean had been one of my mother's classmates, incidentally. And, he came, oh, and the dean came back from visiting the dean and said, you know, the dean says you're the most arrogant young woman they have ever had in this college. I thought, arrogant? I'm scared to death. And I realized what a front I was putting up. And since then, I have always taken a second look or tried to, when instead of my usual casting off of an arrogant son of a bitch, he is, you know, I stopped saying that and I stopped looking. Because so often, the arrogance is just like mine was to cover up the fear, to cover up the fear of not belonging, of not saying the right thing, of not looking right. I never felt I belonged anywhere until I got to AA. That was one of the wonderful things about it when I first came in. I knew I belonged here. What do you mean, do I think I'm an alcoholic? I know I'm an alcoholic because I belong here. And I knew that completely when I first walked in at Alcoholics Anonymous so long ago. And so then I thought, I said, well, now what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to go on the stage. He said, okay. He knew I was going to say that. He said, okay. So he arranged for me to have go to summer stock up in Maine and have wonderful grounding experience in the theater. Marvelous people up there every week, and it was a wonderful experience. And after that, after that, uh, I went with my uncle's company, the small bits, walk-ons, and so forth, and slowly grew in stature and thought that I was going to become a fine actress. Uh, but alcohol was already in the way. I was drunk on stage once, or twice, or three times, who knows. And uh, life didn't stay very good. It was getting worse and worse. One day I suddenly remembered something my grandmother had said to me. I had a Methodist 
grandmother up in New Britain, Connecticut. <clears throat> I arrived up there one day smoking, and she didn't like to see me smoking, but I had taught myself to smoke so I could be sophisticated at college, you know. And she said to me, she said, oh, honey, I'm sorry to see you smoking. And I said, well, it's okay, Grandma. I won't smoke around you. She said, that's not it. She said, dear. And she used to run her fingers over the arm of the rocking chair. She said, smoking leads to drinking, and drinking leads to prostitution. (laughs) I never got paid. So I had my little fling in the theater. And I forgot to mention I also got married, something else we seem to do fairly often. And uh, had a little boy, a 63-year-old man now. And uh, now let me see. I'm just totally forgot what I was saying. My little boy. Mm-hmm. What was I leading up to? You know, if this had happened when I first started speaking in AA, I would have said, I knew I couldn't do it. I knew I couldn't do it. (laughs) And I'd crept off the stage saying, I knew I was no good. Well, I'm just elderly, that's all, and I forget things a little bit. (laughs) Anyhow, we had this son, and uh, then I had to go on the road in order to pay uh, for his taking care of, being taken care of, because my husband decided he was going to stay in New York and get a job on Broadway and be a really famous person. That didn't happen to happen, but I got divorced from him anyway, and I was on tour and so forth, and uh, eventually my dear uncle said to me, he said, dear, we're talking about next season now, and I'm terribly sorry, but we don't have a part big enough for you. Oh, that satisfied me just fine. Of course, I'd been drunk on the stage and hung over and so forth, and he very nicely got rid of me in a very kind way. And then I had some hard times trying to find jobs, trying to uh, work in the theater, and uh, trying to do anything else I could do, because my father had finally come over to me and said, Honey, I'm afraid that the theater is no longer anything I can support you for. And uh, so I was trying for other things, but... Anyhow, during that bad kind of period, I was kind of lonesome. My sister was living with my father. My youngest sister, the pretty one, was living down with my father in his uh, his uh, apartment in New York. And I came over and spent a few days. And I was visiting there. when my sister came home one evening and said, Evie, she said, will you do me a favor? And I said, of course. And she said, I've got a date with a guy. He's coming over to pick me up, but I'm not dressed. I want to change. Would you entertain him for a few minutes until I get changed? And I said, oh, of course, darling. So this guy comes in. He looks like a nice, personal, handsome guy. And uh, I looked at him, and I said, uh, would you like to have a drink? And he said, uh, oh, yeah. And I said, I don't know what kind of booze my father has here. 
because he doesn't drink very much. But I said, I have some bourbon, but it would have to be straight. And this charming man said, is there any other way to drink it? <laughs> and so I knew I'd found my man. So pretty soon, Ricky came home, uh, my sister, and uh, got dressed, and, and they went out. When she came back that night, she was furious. She said, what did you do to Roger? He talked about you all evening. I got so mad, I gave him your phone number. So sure enough, he called, and it was love at first sight. We had everything. I mean, he, he at that time, I was rather... Um, snobby about business people. You know, I was in the odds. That, uh, odds. I was going to write a great novel. Oh, many things I was going to do. If I had done any one of them, oh heavens, I never did. But anyhow, <clears throat> dried up again. <laughs> Come on, Mal, go. Anyhow, to make a long story short, <laughs> we got married. <laughs> and I thought it was going to be wonderful because he was a very beautiful person. He wrote the most beautiful poetry. I still have some of the poetry he wrote, of course, to me. And, but it was lovely stuff, and he was talented. But he satisfied me uh, as not being a businessman because he had been one of the top radio announcers in the early days of WJZ in New York in the, in the blue or the red. Or, you know, red was WAF, blue was, was WJZ. And so that, uh, I neglected to look at the fact that he was working for his family for $25 a week uh, because it was un unemployable in any radio station. But he, he satisfied my need for the arts. And, of course, what was I doing? I wasn't doing anything except remember when I did do it. And so I thought it was going to be great, and it wasn't. Of course, it wasn't because we were both alcoholics and neither one of us knew it. There was very little understanding about alcoholism in those days. We've come a long, long way, and I, and I think that AA deserves a great deal of the credit because although I did read an article by some sociologist, I hope there's no sociologist here, um, about alcoholism, and he did all this stuff, it was in one of the major magazines, and he wrote all this stuff about alcoholism and what could be done about this, that, and the other, and then he ended up by saying, AA has not been uh, uh, here long enough to make any uh, proof that it can serve alcohol, that it can help alcoholics. I thought, that stupid son of a gun, you know. What else? And everybody in the world now, no matter what they have, is in a 12-step program. I don't know what kind of 12-step programs they are, but they're, they're everywhere. Him? Oh, he's in a 12-step program. What was his problem? Sexual deviation. Oh, I see. Okay. I mean, it's as bad as that. I haven't seen that. Too many of you might go, but I mean, uh, I haven't seen that particular one. But uh, anyhow... Uh, we had two beautiful little daughters, and my son, by my first marriage, came to see, came to live with us. And I thought it was going to be wonderful, but of course it wasn't, because alcoholism was in the way. And uh, it was very, very hard. And uh, I recognized there was something wrong, but of course 
I had the best thing in the world to do. I could blame him for my alcoholism. That's one of the troubles with two of them together because you each have the other one to blame because I was sure that if he stopped drinking, I wouldn't drink anymore. Why would I drink? It's just that bastard, you know. And people would come to me and say, Edie, you know, you're drinking more than you used to. And I would say, well, I have to, I have to drink to get along with this son of a bitch. I couldn't live with him otherwise, you know. <laughs> and I believed all that, and I was forgetting all about the other things that had happened in the past. I was forgetting the fact that once when I was on a train, once when I was still playing in the theater of my uncle's company, I had to go to New York to arrange for a living place for my son, and I got back on the train after seeing a, a, a bull I was seeing at that time. It took a sleeper back to Providence, Rhode Island, where we were going to be playing the next night. And uh, I was dead tired and so forth. And I, I got a seat, and this man came and sat beside me. And uh, I wasn't too bad in those days, you know. And so he sat down beside me and uh, said, Would you like to have a little drink? And I said, uh, No, thank you. Besides, I have my own. And I whipped out my pint that was in my purse. And I blacked out. I came to in a jail in Providence, Rhode Island. And I couldn't remember how I got there. I was told that I was put off the train for disorderly conduct. Well, for one thing I want to tell you, I'm just as glad for blackouts. I really don't want to know why I got there. <laughs> So, of course, I blamed everything, you know, for what happened. I said, that man gave me a drink and put dope in it. <laughs> he did, and I told my uncle that. And I had to get to the theater and play that night, and I was in such terrible shape, as you can imagine. But I forgot about that when I was telling my dear friends that, that I have to drink because of Roger. I put all those other things aside. Well, of course, eventually it got worse and worse. And I remember one day, my uh, mother-in-law, who was very old lady, she was 83. I'm 86. <laughs> it's funny how your attitudes change, isn't it? <laughs> she came by to visit us for a few days, and she'd been brought to our apartment by uh, Roger's brother. Uh, so it was a planned visitation, but the trouble was when she arrived, both Roger and I were in bed with dreadful hangovers at about 11 o'clock in the morning. He hadn't gone to work. I guess I'd gotten the kids off to school, but I don't know. But anyway, she arrived, and uh, somehow I pulled myself together and got dinner, and we had a pleasant chatting. She left the next day, and she left a little note on the refrigerator, which I've never forgotten. It said, My dear children... The world frowns upon inebriates. Inebriates? Inebriates? If you don't like the word alcoholic, let's try inebriates on for size. <laughs> We're going to have a whole new society. Inebriates illuminated. <laughs> but she went on on this little note and said, I have written to the Alcoholic Foundation, which, as you know, was the forerunner of the General Service Office, and asked them to send you some literature. And the literature came, and it was, there was one story of a woman in it. 
And I read that story, and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what I was reading. This woman felt the way I did. She acted the way I did. And she gave me hope because she was in AA. And she had gotten sober in AA. And she didn't have to drink anymore. That was the wonderful thing about it. The most wonderful thing I ever heard like that was Bill saying once at a meeting, we no longer have to drink against our own will. How many times have we drunk when we didn't want to? Not only didn't plan to, we didn't want to. God damn it, we didn't want to. But we had to. And that had to is the thing that non-alcoholics don't understand. It's not pretty, but I think the best explanation I've heard for something like that is having diarrhea. Why don't you stop? <laughs> so we, we went on. And I was trying so hard to be a good mommy and, and so forth. My son was getting on, 13 or 14. And uh, our house was in a shambles. And I recognized it. But Roger didn't want to go to AA. Uh, I had read the Jack Alexander piece in the, in the Saturday Evening Post, March 1st, 1942, whatever it was. I had read that and thought it was wonderful, but Roger didn't want to go. And I was so far down, uh, physically and emotionally and mentally that I was terrified of almost everything. I was terrified to go out, I was terrified to stay in. The walls would close in on me, I'd drink a few drinks and drunk, I'd go out to the park with the children. Say hi, everybody, you know. So I was in no shape to do anything alone. I didn't feel. I was too afraid to try and go to AA by myself. But I knew I was an alcoholic, and I was willing to admit that. I told my son I was an alcoholic. I said, honey, I, I know I'm an alcoholic, and I'm promising you I'll never, never drink again. And I meant that with, oh, all my heart. I was about to go up to the country in a little house we had in the country uh, to take the children away from New York City for the summer months. And uh, so, but I said to him, I know if I don't stay sober on my own, I will go to AA. And I knew that promise I was going to keep. So I went off to the summer, and Roger would get up weekends if he was sober, and if he wasn't sober, he wouldn't get up, or he might get up drunk. So it was very erratic, and I drank. I drank, and I drank all summer. And uh, I tried to stop, and I couldn't. And I got back to New York, and I tried to stop. I never tried so hard to stop drinking in my life as I did those first four weeks back in New York City, uh, absolutely hungover every morning and having to drink in order to survive. And uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. I finally knew I had to do something, and I called up. I, I was so desperate, I, I, I did call AA that night, and I told them that I was in terrible shape, and I said, my husband's an alcoholic, and I don't know about our new dog, but he likes to drink it, because he did, he'd lap up the sherry or whatever we had, like anything, he'd get drunk and rugged, would think it was so funny, I didn't think it was so funny. And they said to me, that, I think it's better if you come down to see us tomorrow when you feel better. And I've always been very grateful that they didn't send... Of course, I expected some shining man with white armor coming to my rescue of all the literature I'd read, you know. kind of looked forward to that. Uh, didn't look forward so much to going down to the clubhouse by myself the next day. 
But I had two or three drinks. I had to get myself going. And I took the bus. It was all the way down on 24th Street. 324 and a half West 24th Street was the name of the little, was the address of the little clubhouse. And uh, it, it, there was a, a doorway with a hallway going back and it looked like it was such a long way back there and it looked so dark in the hall. I used to call it the last mile to go from this door here, back there. And back there I could see lights and I could hear laughter and there was, uh, a room back there that was opened up to that door. And so I finally got myself to walk in, and I walked up to that door, walked through it, and into the 24th Street Clubhouse and my first contact with AA. And amazingly, I felt all right. I felt uh, almost at ho- I felt almost comfortable. And I had to go and sit down at a table and have a cup of coffee, and I began to talk to this charming man. And I've looked back many times and thought how remarkable AA is, how it's sculpted, how it's, uh, that's not the word I want, how it's made, anyhow. Um, because as you sit, I sat there and listened to Dan talking about the things he'd done. Some of them were pretty awful. I would say to myself, oh my goodness, I'd feel better. And I sort of brush something off my shoulder and say, I never did that. I, I guess I'm, uh, maybe they'll take me. Maybe they'll take, I was so afraid they weren't going to take me. And he'd talk a little bit more and talk some more and, and then I think, gee, I didn't do that. And again, a little more guilt would drop away. That terrible guilt that we carried around with us is so awful. And there was a little of it being shed right there on my very first contact with Dan. And finally it was t- time for me to go and, uh, I thanked him. And I started to go, and I looked back, and I said, Dan, you have been so wonderful. I've simply got to tell you something else. Well, he said, of course, dear, of course. What is it? And I said, I have an inferiority complex. <laughs> well, of course, everybody laughed, even as you do. So what did I do? You know what I did. Son of a bitch, I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> And he grabbed my hand and said, you'll do. He said, now you know when the meeting is, I'll see you then. And so was my entrance into AA, and I felt elated. I felt so happy. I felt secure. I knew this is where I belonged. And I noticed everybody called everybody by their first names. And that made me feel good, because I'd been in show business, and I love show business, and everybody in show business is first names. And it made me feel at home. And it was a wonderful feeling. So I walked out of there on air, and I knew this was going to be where I belonged. And uh, I went home, and I said, oh, Roger, it's wonderful. You've got to join. You've got to come on down. Oh, I don't want any of that God stuff. And he wasn't interested, and so I let him go for the time being. And then I started my journey in AA. Unfortunately, I had uh, a slip. That was October 24th, 44, that I walked in the club, and I was drunk all over Christmas time. And I finally got sober in January, so January 6th, is my anniversary date. And once I...
thank you, but I thought I was going to get away with it because he already said I was had 49 years of sobriety. I thought that that's good. That'll cool it. That'll cool it. But anyhow, thank you. <laughs> of course, I don't know why. I think we have to accept the fact that we wouldn't have made AA by ourselves. That there were people that helped us along the way and that we had to come to the fact that without it, it was God doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's so hard for us when we don't know what we believe in, when we don't have any faith, when we've lost faith because we're blaming God when he's not the one to blame. It's so hard for us sometimes to come to that understanding. But anyhow, I started to work from then on. It was difficult. It was very difficult. My husband would not go to AA, but he said he would stop drinking. And so he started in with his program, and his program was somewhat different. His program was to learn how to play the accordion at night. <laughs> I had very little sleep for several weeks, and eventually, of course, he drank. I think I prayed for him to get drunk, but finally... <laughs> And meanwhile, I, of course, had not been able to really get to know too many people in AA. My shyness, the inferiority complex or whatever uh, that I had had for so long uh, dogged me in AA for a while. It was a little bit difficult for me. And I couldn't invite people into my home because that's one thing Roger said. He said, okay, if you're going to go to that drunk place, it's all right, but don't you bring any drunks into our house. And I thought to myself, only you, huh? Yeah. And so I couldn't say, come on back for a cup of coffee after meetings and stuff. And I didn't get to know anybody very well. But I still went to what meetings I could. One meeting a week I was allowed to go to. When I hear today, 90 meetings in 90 days, I think. Of course, there was only that one group in New York at that time. Hard to realize that when you see how it's proliferated everywhere. Wonderful. I get excited when I think about how AA is going all over the world. Ooh. I just love it. And then I go back and read a vision for you again, because that, that says it all. So, <clears throat> anyhow, I went on with AA, and finally, one of my little girls was <clears throat> old enough to go, the last one, little one, was able to go to nursery school. So it meant that I had time in the daytime that I could go and volunteer. So I went to volunteer at the New York Intergroup Association. Am, am I over? No. I didn't know you were sitting there. When did you come? <laughs> Listening tentatively. I thought, who's this creeping up on me? No, I... I had any idea. Oh, God, I haven't even started yet, folks. <laughs> so I began volunteering at Intergroup, and it was a wonderful thing for me because... You know, it did me good because I was sitting behind a desk with a telephone and I could say, Alcoholics Anonymous, yes, would you like to know, yes, I'd be happy to tell you. And, or somebody come to me at the desk, you know, and sitting at the desk gave me a little authority. And so I felt comfortable, you know, I had a little authority here. And people would ask me questions about how it worked and I began to realize I knew very little about it. I hadn't really gone through the 12 steps. I had not had a sponsor since... Dan had moved back to Long Island and was not in New York anymore. Uh, a little later on, I did uh, have a, a lovely gal who's now gone uh, as a sponsor. And so 
uh, the exposure of intergroup was wonderful for me because it made me see, begin to see the workings of AA, and uh, and I loved it. But I began to do more work. I got a sponsor and began working the steps and began to uh, really know more and was able, really qualified finally to do the job that I was trying to do. And uh, not too long after that, uh, one of the gals left the office and there was one of the positions was open for uh, another one to come in and take it. And I was invited to come in and take that job as the second secretary there at Intergroup. And that was wonderful. It was it was really a wonderful experience for me. I learned so much about the traditions. I learned I learned so much about service, and, and I was always interested in that. The other gal who was the secretary didn't happen to share my interest in in that aspect of AA, but she was a wonderful twelve stepper. And uh, anyhow, eventually I was invited to come on up to general service and be one of the staff members there. And of course, I was absolutely thrilled to death. I, I was so excited about it, I couldn't stand it. Working to me, it was like heaven. The most wonderful thing that could happen to a gal in AA, to me, was to be asked to serve up there. And so I went up, but it's strange to happen, really happened. Uh, I, uh, I felt uncomfortable, and, and, and I, I, I would have shut my door and take a little nap over lunch. Because I, I was so afraid, I was tired all the time. I thought I should never have moved. I should never have come to here. I, I should have stayed at Intergroup. That's where I belonged. And went through all these feelings. And, and then one day somebody asked me if I wouldn't come and, and chair the beginners meeting at Lenox Hill, my home group. And I said I'd love to. And so I started doing that. And pretty soon, as it happens when you do something in AA, Somebody came up to me and said, Oh, Eve, thanks so much. I couldn't have done it without you. And two or three more came up and said the same thing. Oh, Eve, you're so wonderful. I couldn't have done it without you. And I suddenly realized why I didn't like general service. Why I was unhappy there. I didn't, I was missing all those lovely little pats. Oh, Eve, I couldn't have done it without you. Bullshit. It's not true. It's not true. And so I began to look at my job at general service in a different light. And eventually it is a combo. See, I had missed, I had been, had been missing that wonderful pat on the back. And that egotistical, I, I was sick, I was a very sick lady when I got to AA, and it took me more months than I hate to admit, uh, to get well again. In fact, I'm still working on a few things. And I think we all do. I think we have to forever. Thank God we're not perfect, as the book says. How boring perfect would be. You know, I would hate a boring person. Of course, I'd be envious. See, those little things, little things just always catch us up, don't they? We just think we're doing okay. So anyhow, I, I, I settled into my life at general service, and Roger was uh, gone. We, we got divorced when he, uh, I'd been about five, six years sober. Because he had stayed drunk every, uh, I like to say that's one of the reasons I didn't make much progress in AA was the fact that he was drunk every night. But I suppose he had a contributing cause because I was always taking his inventory and I was always not making the personal growth that I wanted to make on myself because I was paying too much attention to him. And so we finally were divorced. He began to disturb the children 
which is the reason finally that drove me to it, that and getting the job, because now I could, I don't know why, I thought he was going to be a big support, because I never got any money from him, but as a matter of fact, I've had three husbands, and I've never gotten a dime from one of them. Does that make me stupid? Yes. <laughs> Bad pickings. But uh, anyhow, uh, so life of general service began to be very exciting. I began to uh, love the atmosphere there, the sense of growth, the sense of, of service, the sense of, of trying to help group, more groups grow. And I had the international desk many times. And I love that international desk. You'd get a letter from somebody from overseas and say, I'm an alcoholic and uh, what do I do? I, I've heard about you. I read an article or something of this ilk and so on and so forth. And you'd write a nice letter and you'd send them some literature and you'd write an encouraging note and you'd tell them you're an, alco you're an alcoholic and so forth. And you'd be surprised and elated because maybe a month from then or, or maybe six weeks, You'd get a letter from him saying, oh, I thank you so much. We've got 12 members now. I thought, how do they do this? How do they do How do they suddenly get 12 members? And I just sent them a pamphlet and wrote them a nice letter. And I'd write some more. And then sometimes loan members would write to you, members who couldn't get to a group, who didn't have a way of, of perhaps transporting transportation to, to talk to the people that you need to talk to to help get a group started, like the police and the clergy and churches and so on and so forth. And uh, uh, this was wonderful. You'd write these loners, and you'd be twelve-stepping in, in a in a letter, you know. And it was great. And then you'd encourage them. And uh, some things, uh, I I have to find the humor in everything. I think uh, I, I really got a laugh out of this because I had one girl that I wrote to for quite a while, and her name was Anne. And I don't know, there were probably half a dozen other Anns I've been writing to over the years. I don't remember. Uh, but anyhow, when I took a trip a little later, which you'll hear about, I hope, uh, it was in Australia. Uh, this gal whom I was, had met and knew introduced this girl to me and said, uh, this is Anne. You remember Anne, don't you? And I say, well, I don't know, uh, Anne, uh, which Anne? And they looked at me and said, oh, Anne, you know, you've written to her. I said, yes, I probably have, but what's her name? Her name, and they said, well, her name is Anne. And I said, what's her last name? And they said, well, she, she break her anonymity. They began talking with each other. Should she break her anonymity? And so forth. And I said, for God's sake, I had to address the letter. Didn't come to you, Anne. And so they said, oh, yeah, well, this is Ann Regan. Oh, I said, it's great to see you. How are the children? Is the little red-headed boy, is he back with you yet? Or have the institutions still got him? And I went right into the song and dance of all the stuff I've been writing. But that idea that you'd break your anonymity if you told another AA member your name. Oh. <laughs> so anyhow, I, I, I loved it there in the, in the, in the international desk because you could see the growth, and I always loved the, the uh, vision for you chapter. And I think Bill must have known that it was going to grow. I think he had the foresight to. Uh, I think he, he laid the groundwork certainly so it would. And that's one wonderful thing about Bill W. As far as I'm concerned, 
you know, a lot of people didn't like him, a lot of people thought he was pushy, and a lot of people pushed the idea that he was egotistical and wanted power in AA. And if you look back over the record, you know, it's a pretty good one. He had to fight, and fight hard, to get the book published. Thank God we had the book. He had to fight and fight hard to get the traditions. People come asking to come out and talk out in Chicago, for example. Come on out and talk, Bill, but don't talk about them damn traditions. Just give us a baby talk. You know, what he used to call it. Anyhow, regular talk. I wish I could remember that. And uh, he fought for the traditions, and they got passed. In Cleveland, Ohio, was accepted by the convention at that time. Of course, it wasn't as big as the conventions are today, but it was passed and approved, and thank God we had the traditions, because they have kept us on the right course. And then he fought for the conference. He had to fight very hard for the conference. There were people up in arms that were going to bring politics to AA. He just wants power. He just wants to run us. He was trying to set up a, something so he didn't have to do anything. He was trying to build a structure so that he was out of it. And yet this idea that he was looking for power somehow came from some of his, of his detractors. And uh, then the final thing, of course, was the trustees. He felt that it was time that we assumed responsibility for ourselves. That we were sober and recovered. And maybe he thought we were recovering. Maybe he wouldn't have done that. But anyway, just a little edge. So anyhow, he uh, he fought for the trustees thing, and finally it's true we don't. They, in the very beginning, the foundation had the idea of, of one more a, non-AA trustee, sober trustee, than one of our AAs because they didn't, we didn't trust each other. They were afraid they would run off for the money or something. Because secretaries used to do that, and treasurers used to do that. Every group at some time or another back in the old days had somebody take the money away from the till, take the. But that's all. So anyhow, Bill was was a real genius, I think, as far as AA is concerned. But I remember one day I was in the office, uh, walking down the hall, and he was walking up from his office. And I looked at him and I said, "Bill, you look particularly happy today. What's up?" Oh, he said, "I just had the most wonderful morning, Evie." I said, "Yes." He said, "There was an ambassador here all morning talking to me from the UN." Our office was right across the street from the UN in New York at that time. Uh, and he said, you know what he said to me? And I said, no, what? He said, you know, Mr. Wilson, if the rest of the world had your traditions, we wouldn't need the United Nations. And he said, I thought that was so wonderful. He was just absolutely thrilled with that. He felt that it made... Uh, the uh, traditions of AA something that were, were workable in other places and so anyhow I went on that way and my kids began to grow up and my son got married and, as sons do to a girl I didn't want him to marry which is the usual thing She's still he's still married to her I still don't like her but that's alright <laughs> both my daughters went off to school and college and so forth and uh so on, and Roger still drank, still drank, and finally, uh, I had a bright idea in the office one day. I said, you know, I think it'd be a wonderful idea if I asked for a leave of absence. I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have a leave of absence and have this job to come back to? 
I was convinced that, that was the only job I could do, that I was absolutely an ignoramus for anything else. I had no skills, I couldn't type, I didn't know anything, and I'd never been in an office. Or I had about 10 years of uh, theater work, and God knows I wasn't up for that. And so what was I going to do? So I had to have that job to come back to you because Liz was still in college. But I thought it would be wonderful. I was just anxious to see AA all over the world. I just couldn't stand it. I had to go see it. I've always wanted to travel anyway. So I put up this idea, having no idea that anybody would even consider it. But lo and behold, a few weeks later they came in and said, yeah, that's a good idea. There was no pension or anything at that time as far as AA work was concerned. And I think they thought this was a way of making it up to us poor girls who were paid half of what a man would have been paid <clears throat> at that time. They have men now on the staff. That, that was, everybody knew that because one conference one time, the man stood up, one of the delegates stood up and said, Vila, how come, how come, how come there's only women up there? And Bill got up and said, well, I'll tell you why, because we can get much more capable women for the same price that we get an inferior man, or words to that effect. <laughs> Oh, dear. Those days. So anyhow, uh, Anne went first. She had been in the office a little longer than I had, and then it was my turn to go. And I think I had more fun with the planning of that trip than I almost did with the trip. And so I got on board a freighter uh, in July and headed to South Africa, which is my first port of call. And uh, somebody met me at the, at the uh, dock. They had took me to the hotel. Everybody had meetings planned for me. They, ate, they sh showered me with dinners and suppers, and I met everybody and went to meetings and went to meetings. And the first meeting I went to was kind of an adventure because it was right by the railroad track. And so when you were up there talking, and of course I had to talk, uh, not that I minded, you understand, but uh, you'd, uh, but, uh, you'd stand there in the machine. train would start going by, and you'd be in the middle of your talk, and you'd go like so... And so then, <laughs> and then you go on with your talk after the noise of the thing. But they had wonderful AA in South Africa, and they had wonderful service. They had a general service board. They had followed the, exactly the, the way in which it was done in the States. And they kept saying, is this, is this like it is in, in, the, in, in America? And I said, yes, you know, because they were doing such a good job. And then I went on from there, and I went to India. Terrible, such a devastated country with such poverty and so forth. But but AA all over, AA all over. And uh, there again, I, I went to a lot of meetings and listened and talked and uh, did some shopping. I never without where to shop when I'm traveling. Uh, not till you drop, but almost. And. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I was one day at one of these meetings in India, in Bombay it was, uh, I'd finished talking and all of a sudden this lady came running down and had a whole thing of, of marigolds and she put them on the desk in front of me. And I said, oh, thank you, that's lovely. She said, marigolds is a symbol of love. And I thought, isn't that what these people, so poverty-stricken, so desperate, having absolutely nothing Fills everything. No, oh, it's. A, I've been to India twice, and I, I swear each time I'll never go again. Now I won't go because I can't. But anyway, 
it, it was sad, you know, and yet they, they recognized that that was the motivation of AA, was love, and uh, that touched me. And I went on, I went to Singapore, and uh, went to an AA meeting in Singapore, and I had to laugh because we had a trustee at that time, who shall be nameless, who said that AA was fine except for the fact that it was only good uh, for or what he said was wasps. And uh, I knew that wasn't true. And I, Singapore, I sat in that meeting and I looked around the room and I thought, oh my God, I wish Harry were here. Because there were two or three Chinese, two or three Indians, a girl from Australia, a man from Bangkok, myself, an American, a Canadian. I don't think I've left out anybody. And that proved that AA wasn't just for wasps. That was for sure. And it was a wonderful meeting. And from every every place you go, you find that they've got the dynamics of AA, and it's working. And uh, worrying, worrying about spiritual things, there's so many different... That's the wonderful thing about AA. It's developed so that there's a big umbrella up here, so that anybody can come in under that umbrella of any religion, of no religion at all. I've heard atheists, pronounced atheists, stand up here and say, of course I'm an atheist, so I have a difficult time with the spiritual part of the program. He's making the most spiritual talk you've ever heard. But he just doesn't know what it is. And so then I went on from there. I, I went all over, and it was, it was terrific. And I went to Japan, and I wanted to get to the AA meeting that was held in St. Albans Church. And uh, I took a cab over there and I was a little dismayed because it was November in Tokyo and, and it was dark and the cabbie had left and the church where he left me was empty and falling down and obviously there was no one there but two little girls came out of the church there and I said I wanted to go to St. Albans of course I shouted you know you'd say much more to understand you if you yell you know where I was <laughs> So they pointed over, and there was a little low building over there, so I went on over to that. And uh, there was a librarian sitting at a desk, and I said, is there an AA meeting here? And she said, upstairs. So I went up the stairs, and there was a hallway with a head at the end of it, and three rooms here. So I went up to this room and put my ear up against the door, and I didn't hear anything, so I went on to the second room where it said first first grade, that one it said second grade. First grade, and I put my head up against the door, and again, no no sound. And so I, I went on to the third door, and that was the last one. It said kindergarten. And I listened, and I heard, really ever here seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path? So I went in, and they looked at me, and they said, are you the eve that we were going to meet at the airport tomorrow? And I said yes, but I had uh, I had up uh, set my oh I'm going ahead, but I moved it up. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you something. I had shingles last summer, and I don't know if you've ever had shingles, but it's very painful, and it was all over my head. And I think sometimes it just burned some of my brains. <laughs> rather that than old age. (laughs) 
So anyhow, we talked and we talked, and I had somebody, uh, the reason I had come uh, earlier than I had planned to was that the office had contacted me, cabled me that they wanted me to go because the Japanese were very anxious to translate some of our literature into Japanese, and I was to look and see whether I thought that they were capable of doing that. Of course, my answer to that was, how do you expect them to know anything about our program if we can't give them literature which translates into their language so that they can read about it and learn? Sometimes the office was a little confusing. But um, <laughs> I didn't do it my way, you know. So anyhow, after the meeting, we went over later to a Japanese meeting. And of course, I couldn't understand it exactly, and this man was going to try to translate it for me so I could understand it. And I said, no, no, because that, that disturbs the sound and everything. I can, I know. I can understand. Sure, you could tell, because one little Japanese fellow would be sitting there saying, I knew he was, I knew he was in hell of a trouble. The next guy starts talking, he'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's sober, so you know what? What do you have to have translation for? <laughs> and I've been in meetings where I couldn't understand the word. In Germany, I don't understand anything about in German. My French is very poor. My Italian was less than good. But you always need to know exactly what they're saying. There's a feeling that you know. You can tell by their attitude. Because attitude is the whole thing. You know, I've wandered on tonight so long, I don't know what I have said, and I recognize now that I have done nothing uh, talking about, really, about the program and how we stay sober. And that's the most important part of AA. And there are some things I think I have to point out for myself, because the the things I learn every day, and and, and some of them are involving myself. And I just had a little experience with one of my daughters which made me recognize the fact that I wasn't as wonderful a mother and as perfect as I thought I was. That I was a little insensitive to something going on in her life. And at first I was mad. And then I realized that I hadn't looked at my motivation. And to me that's the most important part of the fourth step. I used to think how wonderful I was. I was so generous at Christmas time making the family broke for the next six months while I gave away extravagant presents and then said, well, I'm so generous, I'm just wonderful, you know, Lady Bountiful, they used to call me. Oh, I thought that was so terrific. Then I had to look at my motives. Why was I doing that? Not because I felt generous, but because I wanted to hear all those lovely comments about me. And I want to tell you, as far as I'm concerned, there's one prayer in the big book that I think is absolutely important for me to look at very often, or use very often. Help me to remove the bondage of self, because that was me. Everything was in on self. And I have to work on that today. And so, do the steps. Do the steps. And the eleventh step. I saw through prayer and meditation to understand God because I didn't think that I could turn my life over to something I didn't understand. And I found that I could understand God. And I did begin to turn my life over to a power greater than myself. The program is all there. and We need to use it all. Little bits and pieces aren't enough. I did quite a lot of little bits and pieces of AA when I was first sober because that will of mine was so strong I couldn't give it up. 
And it wasn't until I did that, until I learned that I, we weren't here in a human experience looking for a spiritual thing. We're spiritual beings to start with. We're spiritual beings having a human experience. And I think when we look at it that way, it doesn't seem so hard. It doesn't seem so difficult to turn our life and our will over to our greater, greater than ourselves. And I learned a lot from my trip around the world. I went by myself. People would say, you're going all alone? And I said, can you come? And they'd say... <laughs> and they'd say, oh, no. And I said, well, then I've got to go alone. If I wanted to go, I had to go alone. And I wanted to go. And I want to tell you, when you turn your will and your life over to a power greater than you are, it's amazing what you can do. <clears throat> because here was I, <clears throat> this scaredy cat, absolutely terrified to walk around the corner, to take on anything that was untoward or strange, to try anything new. Here I was, wandering through foreign airports, getting on funny planes. I remember once coming out of uh, Bangkok, uh, I thought, oh dear, I hadn't flown for a while, I'd been on a ship. And I was a little nervous about it, because I thought, these little men, these little tiny men, I, would they be able to handle a big jet like this? You know, I'm getting myself a little nervous, to see how mature I am. And so, I, and, and all of a sudden, the, the captain came over the last figure and says, this is Captain Johansson. <laughs> I relaxed. <laughs> how stupid. There's silly things we can do sometimes. But the big thing from that, that trip was it really and truly helped me overcome fear. I'd always been afraid of everything, and here I'd taken on the whole world. And everybody was nice. Everybody was kind. And I found that if I smiled, people smiled. And that if I looked as if I needed help, even though I was a big, strong woman, I'd get it. It was a great experience. I wish everybody could go around the world. Maybe if everybody had an understanding of the rest of the world's problems, we wouldn't have as many problems as we have today. War is still with us. We don't seem to be able to find that love amongst us. That ambassador, I think, would be sorry <clears throat> today to see that the traditions are not working around the world. But they're working for us. And as long as we keep on the path of AA and keep working the program and understand that we are, as Shakespeare said, there's a divinity within that shapes our ends. And love is the key word. Everywhere around the world that I went, they said, you know, AA is the greatest export that's ever been made from the United States, and I agree with them. God bless Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.